I think the other thing that's really important, and I think what comes at the bottom of it, we all have times in our careers where we feel as though we're flagging a bit and it certainly seems a bit more of a slog, particularly when it's your, suddenly your day job, yeah. and you've got deadlines. And I think it's uh, the other thing I'd say to myself is stay in love with the writing, mm. just see it more as writing rather than publishing books. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. You may notice already that I have a bit of a croaky voice. I have done a test, I haven't got the dreaded COVID. Not that you could catch that through the airwaves, but uh, I was actually at an event to launch the literary agency of my agent, Jan Rickmans, who has gone into business with Lou Johnson and set up Key People Literary Management. Had a fantastic night the other night meeting other people in the agency over at Rushcutters Bay. And I don't know if I picked up something there or not, but I've been croaky all weekend, and but I'm pushing on because I have a fabulous guest for you today. Uh, a little bit more about that in a moment. As I'm recording this, it is Monday, November 13. I had the absolute pleasure of Getting to the end of my revision of Out of the Ashes, which is my current manuscript, I did that on Friday, and that will very soon be going off to my publisher at Belinda for an edit, and then will be recorded by Rebecca Bowyer, who also recorded Blackwater Lake. So while Out of the Ashes is a standalone book, it's also part of a series which I've created from my first published book, Blackwater Lake, which is out now on audio. You can find that anywhere you get your audio books or through your library at BorrowBox. And regular listeners to the podcast will know I have been continuing Eve's journey and it's been an absolute joy to be back in that world. Also, I have to say an absolute joy to finish that manuscript because I have been working on it for some time after having a busy year and really good to get to the end for now. So, In terms of writing work that I'm going to be doing at the moment, I'm going back to do a, re a revision, a structural revision on Because You're Mine, which is the manuscript that I was working on and shopping around. I was working on it for a number of years, but shopping that around last year. I'm absolutely determined to get that book out there one way or the other. I am going back to have another look at that after receiving some fabulous feedback from a couple of writing friends. And that will be going off to my agent to also have a look at very soon. I'll very soon also be starting work on another novella for next year's Christmas anthology with HQ. This year's anthology, A Country Vet Christmas, is going gangbusters out there. It's been fantastic to see it hitting number one in all the kind of Christmas fiction categories and Christmas anthologies and even just general anthologies on Amazon. Lovely to see those number ones in the rankings next to that anthology. And that is available through Big W, Kmart, Target. If you're in Australia or any independent bookstore, you should be able to ask your bookseller there to order it in. 
And of course, any overseas listeners, you will find that online in ebook, not in audio, unfortunately, but never say never that might happen down the track. I actually just really want to get on to this week's guest because this is going to be a fantastic chat about a wonderful new book that I was at the launch for last week. My guest is Joanna Nell, and the book is Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year. So if you don't know of Jo, let me tell you a little bit about her, but I'm sure that most listeners to the podcast will know of Jo because she has been on a couple of times. Mrs. Winterbottom is her fifth novel, fifth published novel, I should say. She has others, as we all do, in the drawer. Jo's career is just going from strength to strength, and Jo is an internationally published, best-selling author of five novels. She's also a doctor and an advocate for positive ageing. Her short fiction has won numerous awards and been published in magazines, journals, and short story anthologies, including award-winning Australian writing. She's also written for the Sydney Morning Herald Spectrum and Sunday Life magazine. Originally from the UK, Joanna lives on Sydney's northern beaches in a mostly empty nest with her husband and a creaky Labrador, Margot, who's absolutely gorgeous. Jo is also a member of my writing group, The Inkwell, not the writing group that I own, but the group that I am a member of. We're in the same group, The Inkwell. And I can attest to the fact that she has a wicked sense of humour and an enormous amount of heart, both of which you'll find in all of her books. Jo's books are the sort of books that you can sit down and enjoy and you'll need a box of tissues by your side so you can dry both the happy and the sad tears. And I have to say in Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year, it will be mainly happy tears because there are some hysterically funny moments in this book. And because I've been there from the conception of this book, I wanted to talk to Joe about the evolution of the story and the characters. They have come a long way from their origins, shall we say. We'll more about that in a moment. But there's so much we can learn from Joe's process and her experience as a writer overall and in this book in particular. And in fact, the last time that Joe was on the podcast, we chatted about our respective revision processes, and it's one of the most listened to episodes of the podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can pop back and have a listen. So for now, sit back, grab a cuppa, or put your headphones on and your runners, looking at you, Kanina May, and get ready to be inspired in this chat with best-selling author Joanna Nell. Joanna Nell. Welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch, third chat on the podcast. So lovely to have you back. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be here, Pam. And you're a veteran. It's great. Can't believe it's three. Now, Joe, before we get started, I, I really wanted to chat to you today about the evolution of Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year because I've just said in the intro, I've been there from the beginning of this book and seen how it started for you and how the, the plot and the characters evolved. And there is quite a story there. But before we get into that, could you maybe just tell the listeners what the book is about? Tell us about Mrs. Winterbottom. Yeah, so Mrs. Winterbottom is actually Dr. Winterbottom, Heather, and uh, she's been, she's a GP, she's been in practice with her husband, Alan, for 40 years. So they've been living and working together and they're finally approaching retirement. They're about to hang up their stethoscopes for good. And they've been so focused on making sure the practice is being sold and, and, and sorting out their patients that on the first morning of their retirement, when they sit down together, having assumed that they're both on the same page and want the same thing from this 
wonderful new chapter in their life. They soon discover that they actually have very different visions of, of what retirement looks like. Heather dreams of escaping. She wants adventure. She wants to go off to Greece and sail around the Greek islands. And and Alan uh, wants to turn their back garden into a small farm. He wants to grow his own vegetables and keep chicken, which are going to be named after his ex-girlfriend, and even plant a vineyard. And this is really not on Heather's radar at all. So the, the central question in the novel is, does Heather get to stay behind and watch Alan grow his vegetables? Does Alan tag along as extra baggage on Heather's trip around the Greek islands? Or is there a third way when they do each what they want to do, but on their own? As we are women of a certain age, and I know you've recently retired from your work as a GP, but it's funny because in my household, my husband, John, is keen to do lots of traveling and I love traveling too, but I have this horror of actually going on one of those grey nomad trips with him because I hate his driving. I can't stand sitting next to him in the car. I, I always feel that I'm going to probably not come out alive. I know that's probably one of the things he wants to do. So every now and then this will come up in conversation and it's not, not going there. It's just too hard. So I'm sure there's lots of people out there that are going through the same thing as Heather and Alan. That's right. And you only have to look on social media to see that people are out there. They, they are taking all sorts of golden gap years. Think back to the absolute kernel of the idea. Where do you think that came from? It's really hard to say with this one. Some books, as you know, Pam, there's an instant where the idea comes to you. In the last book I had, I can I know exactly where I was and what it was. And the whole plot came to me in, in, uh, in an instant. This one was more of an evolution and it started, I think, originally with a conversation I had with my husband, John, actually probably three years ago or so, when he likes to look at boats on the internet. And I asked him what he was looking at and he said, oh, I think what we should do when we retire is we should sell the house, buy a big boat and stay all the way up into the sunset. And I certainly, that sounded like a very attractive idea. But then I thought, no, actually, that's not what I want to do. Firstly, I do get a bit seasick. <laughs> But also I envisage maybe more of a tree change than a sea change than buying an acreage and keeping keeping chickens growing vegetables, actually. So it's probably the other way around in our case. And initially we had a laugh about it. And then I started to worry. I thought, no, what if we really do want different things? Who gets to compromise? And combined with that, I think, was the myself coming to that stage, retirement is on my horizon. I, that's a work in progress for me. I, I'm in that transition out of my day job. And I think it was the, the pandemic and a few health issues that, that sort of had me thinking about retirement and what my life would look like if I was no longer a, a doctor. It's so much part of my identity. Who would I be? And this is what I was exploring through my character, Heather's eyes. And then the grief bit We'll talk about that later, I think. But um, at the time, my daughter was studying ancient history and classics at uni in her first year. And suddenly I was immersed in this world with her of, of, of Greek mythology and uh, Homer. And, and it was all very exciting and new to me. And all these disparate ideas that kind of come together when we create a story, because they're quite different, these ideas. I know that you did lots of reading around the whole Greek mythology thing. And like you say, you had this idea for this couple who are wrangling what they're going to do in retirement. So I just love this whole idea of the way our brain, our subconscious kind of works to piece these ideas together. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? But sometimes there'll be an idea. And I, I think it's not for lack of ideas. I think that I, like, like a lot of writers, I'm, I'm seeing ideas all the time. But 
sometimes they're not enough to hang a whole book on. It can just be, it might be enough for a short story or it might be enough for a character or one sort of subplot, if you like. Mm. But you sometimes need to wait, I think, um, for the other layers to to arrive and um, it just maybe needs a little bit more time to, to come together sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Now, Joe, this book for you was not written under contract, so you had some time, didn't you? But you it probably wasn't as urgent, perhaps, as some of your other books. So was the writing process, like that whole creative process at the beginning, pulling the ideas together, was that quite different for you from the others? I think it, it always starts with um, the character for me. So the, the characters came quite quickly and they're fully fleshed out, not necessarily in that sort of full bio. I wouldn't know what colour eyes they had or what they eat for breakfast, but certainly what had happened to them in, in their uh, younger years or what their, their motivations for behaving the way they were. But they're basically sitting around waiting to to have something to do. Um, and I'm always aware of that three-act structure. I think it's now ingrained into the back of my brain. I don't need to necessarily sit down and write out the whole plot in a, a synopsis form at the beginning, although that might have been quite <laughs> useful in this case. But I know roughly where the beats are going to be, what, how it starts, what's the inciting incident. And I, I suppose I'm, as I'm going along, I'm thinking of these things. I think the approach I'm going to take from now on, because of the, the issues I did have with this particular book is to, it, it book is to start with a blurb. So like that back cover and write that down. And if it sounds like it makes sense and it would entice me as a reader to pick up this book, then I think that's a good place to start rather than the synopsis necessarily. Um, and I didn't do without that. I thought I had the premise, but actually it turned out that when I came to really hang that on the plot, it, it didn't quite mm. work. That's such a great idea, isn't it? Writing the blurb first. And I've spoken to a few authors on the podcast who do that. And because it is that you, you're getting to the heart of what's appealing to the reader, isn't it? Because of course the blurb is like a, a marketing kind of exercise, really. What is the reader going to love about this book? So I think that's a great idea. And I, I think that, um, Premise is everything. Certainly my most successful books have had the simplest premise in a way. It's something that an immediate hook, it's very simple to, to say in a sentence or two sentences. And um, I think it's very easy to get caught up in the writing and the characters and have the plot uh, go along and you know what it's about. But actually when you try to put that across, it, it's not quite not quite the hook that you hoped it would mm, be. Mm. As you say, you had the premise of the this retiring couple and what they were going to do with their golden years, and you had the, the kind of Greek mythology aspect back at the beginning. Can you tell us about the kind of process for writing that very first draft and how that was for you? Yes, okay, I'm trying to think back to how that was. I Because I knew the, the characters and the setting so well, the beginning of the book really came together very quickly. The humour was in when the the energy was in this couple and their marriage, which has come to a bit of a crossroads. It's in a little bit of a, a crisis and all, all the hate and the energy was there. But I think I went down the wrong rabbit hole, really. I think the second half of the book, initially, I had my character staying in the same village. She was certainly fed up with her husband and I knew that she was going to meet another man i won't say what what happens but i knew that she was going to use her relationship with um another man to um examine what's going on in her own uh marriage without necessarily having a, a an, an intimate affair and she 
met this very charming retired professor who paid her a lot of attention and she becomes rather embroiled in his life and ends up helping him to write his magnum opus. She breaks a few sort of professional boundaries in helping him do this and trying to ignore the fact that his eccentricity is really turning into the mania. So it was quite a different story. And in that second half, it began to lose its energy. I certainly finished it and I probably wrote three or four drafts of it, but it just, and I was so far into it and I was so far invested in it that I just kept rewriting it and hoping that I would feel that just get that feeling that it was the right story. But oh, look, I was just ignoring that little voice on my shoulder that says, really not sure that this works. How are you going to write this into the blurb? And, but I was excited about it. And I'd done a lot of research on this Catholic professor and I had him. He'll probably come in a later book, actually. Oh, good. And so he, it was probably about four drafts and several months of work that I thought that this was finished. Um, and that was what I um, submitted. So I had done the usual things of doing the first draft very quickly, printing it out, putting it aside for a couple of weeks, going back, reading it as a reader, and then going through it again with pens and making suggestions. But I didn't really change. I was changing things on the line, but I wasn't seeing the bigger picture. I wasn't really standing back and working out why it wasn't really working. So that went off to my publisher. I do remember this time, Joe, and I remember how excited you were about all the Greek angles of this story. And it was just, it was great because we'd go along to the Inkwell, a writing group. We were getting these fabulous insights into Greek mythology and classical Greek kind of story. And it was amazing. It was so good. And we were being pulled along with you in this story. Yes, this is great. This is great. Yeah. But tell us what happened when you sent it to your publisher. Nothing. That was the thing. So a week went by and I didn't hear back. Usually, uh, if I, I've been very lucky to have the same publisher of Agasaurus that has checked for all my five books. And that's really quite unusual in, in publishing. So I think we know each other's processes quite well. And I hadn't heard anything back in the first few days. Usually when she's picked it up and had a quick look, she'll send me something. And then I got the email on a Friday evening. And I remember opening that now and it was five o'clock on oh. a Friday, which is a really good time to deliver bad news, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and she would say, you're not going to like me for this. Uh, while there's much to love in this, I really feel that there's a bigger story in this. And what she was alluding to was that Heather had spent a lot of time talking to an elderly patient of hers who'd become her friend and, and really um, confident. And Esme had said, oh, you're just going on about going to Greece and Alan won't go. Why don't you just go off? Go and do a Shirley Valentine and go on your own. Rebecca had picked up on this Shirley Valentine reference and she said, why doesn't she go off to Greece and do a Shirley Valentine? And it's really not what I wanted to hear because what everybody wants to hear once you've submitted something to someone to read, you just want to hear, this is brilliant, this is fantastic, you've got it completely right, we'll make a couple of small changes on the line and then straight to publication. But that wasn't it. And I was disappointed to say the least, but I was actually more disappointed in myself, I think, than, than Rebecca because she uh. really just told, told the truth. And I was disappointed in myself because I'd ignored that little voice inside. And this has happened to me once before. You probably remember this poem with my second book, The Last Voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker. It's almost exactly the same thing. 
wrote two drafts of a, a book and then realized it wasn't working. And I was being mentored by the lovely Valerie Parv at the time. And she said to me, and it was a Friday, five o'clock uh, phone call. And, and she said to me, you'll know when it's the right story because you'll feel it. You'll feel it viscerally. And actually, I do make a few references in the book to Gestalt or that sort mm. of gut feeling that have about something. And I knew that had been missing when I'd been writing this. The first half of the book, I did have that. And then I lost uh. it in the second half book. So I really, in effect, had, had wasted months of work. I should have shared it earlier. Um, and over that weekend, I thought about it and I thought, I can't do this. The whole Greece thing. I'd never set a book overseas. It's been years since I've been to Greece. I can't do this. It's just too big. But of course, the weekend goes by and, and by Monday morning, I was in quite a different frame of mind. Yeah. So you said about changing the second half primarily, wasn't it, Joe? Yeah. And look, once I thought about it, I thought she's absolutely right. This is an opportunity to tell a much more exciting story. And I decided to, I made a conscious decision to turn all those feelings of disappointment into excitement oh, about starting that. a new project. Because we all love starting a new project, don't we? And I think my, my, our writing group helped. I think there were a few WhatsApp messages that went backwards and forward. And by now, my husband knows all the right things to say. So he pulled me a glass of wine and said that we've been here before. And I knew that if I'd done it once, I could do it again. And actually, it was only half the book. It wasn't mm. the whole book. The first half of the book just needed a few tweaks. But basically, I was writing another forty to 50,000 words as opposed to another 90,000. So by the Monday morning, I was so excited and I was able to um, reply to that email and say, yeah, I'm right on it. Yeah. So there That's we go. a major turnaround in a couple of days too. But isn't it always the way when we get this, whether it's a rejection or sometimes we might get a nice rejection. And I guess that mm. in a sense, it was a bit of a rejection for you in terms of the book that you submitted yeah. was like, no, we don't want yeah. this particular book. We like bits of it, but we yeah. don't like the whole thing. So it is really a matter, isn't it, of going through that process. I think you've got to let yourself feel all those feels and then just sit with it and just then think, okay, what is there in this advice or this feedback that I can really use? Sometimes I, I think you know, that there's a temptation. We will say, oh, take some advice, but don't take it away. If you really believe in something, you have to stick to your guns. But And, and there might have been bigger, more established authors who perhaps the publisher wouldn't have had the courage to say, no, we need a different story. And, and it wouldn't have worked. So luckily I have this trusting relationship with my publisher. She trusts my process and I trust her um, insight and, and her ideas. So I think that's where it's, it's a sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, trusting their experience and their kind of knowledge yeah. of what readers are going to respond to. But do you think that you're a little bit daunted by the Shirley Valentine kind of reference? <laughs> I was. I, look, I love that film. I'm sure we all, we all know that film. And I, one of the things I did was went back and watched that film. And it was uh, 1989. You remember Pauline yeah. Collins and Tom Thompson on that boat? And look, it was a little bit dated, of course. It's more than 30 years old. Um but there was still something really joyful in seeing that woman, not that she only take her clothes off, but just to step outside herself and just discover a new identity. And it was actually a stage play initially. It was by Will, Willie Russell, That's who right. wrote Education Creature. And it was initially a monologue. Like, and I think it would have been fantastic to see on the stage. 
But I, when I watched it, what struck me was that the husband, I can't even remember his name, was so one-dimensional. He was just so awful. And I felt that Alan needed his redeeming features. And I think during the book, I wanted to make him a relatable or a sympathetic character. And I think hopefully we come to understand why he's mm-hmm. so wrapped up in nostalgia and why he's reluctant to move on. Look, I liked the idea of, of that, but... Um, of course, I've also been down the whole ancient Greece rabbit hole, uh, and I was wrapped up with this idea of Odyssey, which is the sort of journey of, of homecoming uh, after an adventure. And I, it struck me that men always have the adventures here, so I wanted to do a female Odyssey, and perhaps she needed to go off and have adventures, and, and to whether she returns to Alan or not, I won't give her any spoilers away. But so I, I started calling it. Shirley Valentine meets Homer's Odyssey. I kept that tagline to myself because I didn't think that publishers would like that much. And that's basically what I kept in, in my mind. And I had so much fun with it. It was, it was a lot of fun to, to write. Um, and some of the feedback I got was that second half in Greece was, was quite, it really flowed and you could tell the energy and the excitement that I had in, in yeah. writing it. Yeah, so you took yourself off on a virtual journey to Greece. You said that was one of the things that you were worried about. You hadn't been to Greece for a long time and you hadn't set a book overseas or in anywhere like that before. How did you go about that then? You'd done all the research on kind of ancient Greece, but what did you do to immerse yourself in the Greece that Heather visits? Yeah, I had been to Greece and I thought I hadn't been to Greece since just before my husband and I got married. I should think we went one more time at that night. About coincidentally, about that time, I found an old travel journal that I'd written in 1997 when we went on a, a Ionian flotilla holiday before we were married. And I'd written out this journal. I'd kept a diary, written a journal, pasted, literally printed out photographs and pasted within the days before word processing and given this to my husband to be as a present. And I'd kept it. So looking back through that gave me a lot of the feeling of being there. In fact, I used some of the places in the journal, places we'd actually been up in the book. There was one particular little bay where there's a scene where Heather is stranded on a boat and it's in a little deserted bay on the northeast coast of the island of Ithaca. And that's actually one of the places where John and I spent the night there. So I was able to draw on that. And then, of course, to use the author's writer's best friends, which are Google Mm -hmm. Earth and YouTube. It's that really incredible what is on there now. So I was able to walk along the modern streets of these small little villages on the island of Ithaca in Catalonia. And at one point in the book, Heather takes um, a trip up a rocky path up to what is known as it's a sort of tourist destination. Some of the excavations they say is uh, Odysseus's palace. It's just some debate whether it is, but she takes this rocky path up there. And I Googled on YouTube videos of this, and I actually found people who were videoing their oh, journey wow. up there. So I knew what the path looked like. I knew what the plants were, and so what they would smell like. I, we have a Greek restaurant down the road. We went and had a Greek meal, so I could remember the taste and smells. I think it's drawing on lots of different sources, and I had this wonderful virtual journey back to Greece. And I'd love to do a retrospective now and go back in, in person and, and do that. Again. Oh, I think you must. I think I have to take my writing group with me. <laughs> Essential. And we can all take Mrs. Winterbottom and get lots of pics for social media. It'd be great. 
So once you got into that second phase of the writing, I know you'd written numerous drafts, but this was the mm. second phase in terms of the, the changes that you're making mm. to the story. Mm. And you said you, it's like you self-permission to go there, isn't it? That's all right. I'm mm. going to do this. Mm. What point did you get to? We're talking about that kind of little voice of intuition, that little gut instinct thing. Did it take you very long to get to the point where you thought, yep, this is it, I've got it? No, I think it was probably there all along. And in fact, I uh, the previous version had felt I was wrestling it, trying to back it into the wrong shape hole in the. But this one, I think I just sat back and thought, okay, I'm really just going to let this come from somewhere that's a little bit more subconscious and not try so hard. I think sometimes we really try, don't mm. we? And you have to keep going when times get a bit tough. But I think there is a line to be drawn where sometimes you just have to let the subconscious and, and, and let the imagination do what it wants to do. So, of course, I had to take the character I already had, Heather. And so what she did and the way she acted and reacted to, to things that happened there was totally within character. But it, I knew her so well by that yeah. stage. So even putting her in a brand new setting, meeting new people, I knew how she would react to that. So, yes, as I say, that second half came very mm, quickly. Mm. And you mentioned before about you were trying to make sure that Alan didn't come across as this one-dimensional kind of cardboard character. And, of course, we do find out a lot as the story unfolds about why Alan does want to stay there, what his life has been like before in the village. And his, I don't want to give away too much, but... I love the way that you weave that backstory through the plot. Can you Have you got any advice for people who might be listening? Because I know this is something that writers often struggle with. How much information do we give about the character's previous life and where do we give it? I think I've read recently Story Genius by Lisa Kron. I think we both read that. And what I took away from that, which I probably was doing subconsciously with this, was that she says basically the story starts before the the story starts, if you like, that one of the things she suggests is that you write three scenes from the character's past, three pivotal scenes that could be something that happened to them in childhood, in young adulthood, or something that's very pivotal that directs their motivation. It really that they keep coming back to that, trying to uh, heal that yeah. wound, if you like. And so I don't think you have to know every single thing about their backstory, but there will be certain scenes that I don't always write flashbacks as whole scenes. There are some people, I think Charlotte Wood's one that says you say it in the least number yeah. of words that you can, but I am one where I actually do like to write a whole scene as a, a, a flashback. And I, it's, it, it, it may be no more than two or three um, that are very pivotal and instrumental, and but they have to advance the story as well. They can't just put a random thing in, but it may be explaining uh, something that's just happening happened in the story, but also perhaps providing a, a, a bridge across to the next thing that happened. So you start to understand a little bit about them. But it's a thorny issue, and I, I know that we're, we're forever we discussing are. how uh, we need to put in backstory. How much is too much? There's a rule. Don't put any in for the first three chapters. First ten thousand words, be sparing. But I think that. Uh, Sometimes it's essential to put it in, but it, it, the story may dictate how you do that, whether it's a separate thing or whether it's just a, a thought or a memory or something that's, that's triggered. Yeah, and it depends so much on the character that you're working with, doesn't it? And 
the situation that you find them in at the beginning of the story as to where you, you don't want to info dump a whole lot of backstory at the beginning, but it might be a case that there's little mentions in the first three chapters that don't do break that kind of rule, if you like. Yeah, that's right. I think that's where we see an info dump is different to maybe just set a little mm. hints or a little seeds there. I think the reader needs to know something. Otherwise, they, they could be scratching your head thinking, well, what's going on? Why are we in this situation? And I think we need a little, a little bit of yeah. telling, maybe um, hinting at, at, at what the current setup is. I, I think it's a case of, as you say, feeling your, your way and um, being dictated by the character. Mm. And of course, Joe, you had the whole kind of Greek odyssey type thing to fall back on as a beautiful theme running through the story and again we don't want to give away spoilers but you mentioned before this idea of homecoming so in a sense I know that you felt at the time that a lot of that reading and that writing was wasted but I do think that it's layered into the story isn't it even if it's in a much smaller amount but it's forms like a, a, a backbone type thing for the story itself and for the themes that you've written about. Yeah thank you I, I think that was something that occurred later actually it just shows that as you do uh as you get further on with your draft you can still it's never too late to add in another another layer so i think that sort of the that idea of that, that female her following a female odyssey just really occurred until it was really quite well established in the the story and i was quite conscious that I'd done way too much that that rabbit hole had been a very deep one and I'd read way too much. I'd become completely obsessed actually over the sort of samurai I wrote it. And it was delightful. I'd have done almost like a uh, DIY uh, degree in, in, in classics and uh, myself and um, it opened up a whole new world to me. But I had to be careful not to overload the narrative with those references. Um, I think even in the final editing stages, we were cutting back and cutting back. But I did fight for a few references uh, to, to remain. But I just wanted it to be more of a subtle thread than a, this is what it is yeah. um, and, and hanging everything on that. So I hope that that worked. Um, and I hope that I've already had a couple of people who said, oh, I'm just going to go off and read the Odyssey now. So that's something I hadn't done before I started researching. Actually, a love story, a love story between uh, an a husband and a wife um, and I think it's far more digestible maybe than, than the Iliad and it was written you know, nearly 3,000 years ago and yet some of the themes of that are still relevant to, to modern day life. It's really interesting isn't it the whole idea of story and how it's just through the generations and centuries we're all just so attracted to story and with that one to a love story. Yeah exactly. One of the fabulous features, Joe, of your writing is always the humour in your books. And I think yours are some of the few books that I actually sit there and read and laugh out loud. It's very hard to find a book that can make you laugh and make you cry in other parts. And I really appreciate that about your writing. But for you, it's the author. When you're writing those scenes where the humour is really coming to the fore, are you really conscious? Of that is that coming out naturally for you, or is that something that you are really working over and over on the page? And look, I think it has to come naturally. I suppose you can manufacture a situation where the humour naturally happens, but I'm like Domestos for jokes. I can kill a hundred, uh, sorry, ninety nine point nine percent of all jokes. So I, I'm not a 
not someone who can tell a, a joke. I tend to find that comedy more accidentally in just normal interactions, and particularly between a husband and a, a wife who've been married for a long time. There's just a lot of humor. And it is sad. Some of the book um, features some sad things that's happened, and, and the fact that Heather and Alan's marriage is, is very rocky is it, quite sad, but, but there's a lot of humor to be had in that too. And that's maybe something I naturally do. I, I um, try to turn things around and, and find maybe that's the, the doctor thing where you tend to have a rather black sense of humor ourselves, which is a self-protective mechanism. But I think we also try to um, make people feel better and, and laughing makes people feel better. Uh, and it's a fundamental way of communicating. If you think about it, babies smile before they can even talk. So I think we have a human need to laugh and smile. And sometimes the world feels very, a place where there isn't much laughter, mm. particularly at the moment. It feels as though it might be flippant to find humor or, or comedy. But, but in a way, I want my books to be entertaining. Um, I want to take the reader to places that are you know, quite difficult, difficult things to, to deal with, but also hand them a rope to lift them back out again. So I try not to make it too consciously. I think it's like the, is it the Coco Chanel said, before you go out, take one thing oh, off. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit like that. I think it's so, if you might have gone, push the joke, push the humorous bit a little bit too far, is maybe take it back a step too. There's something that, I think my husband's very funny and some of the things he He's not Alan, by the no, way. No. I have to say, we've got this hashtag, John is not Alan. But some of the things he says and his observations, he sees the humor in life as well. So there's uh, probably no surprise I chose somebody like that as my life partner. No, absolutely. And I can attest to that. John is a very funny man. And you as well have that beautiful. Sometimes on purpose. Sometimes on purpose, even. yes. Which is even better. <laughs> Joe, five books in as in terms of publishing, and I know you've written other books previously, you've written short stories, but mm. five novels in. If you think back to yourself as a debut author, how do you feel that you are going now in terms of being quite assured of yourself in terms of what you're writing? your abilities, if you like, but also in terms of how you want your books to be perceived and how that allows you to deal with your publisher and other people in the publishing industry. Mm. Yes, so I'm not convinced I am in control of my career. Sometimes it feels like it's controlling me. I think when I just started out, I had great literary aspirations, like writing short stories and the writing I was focusing on being quite clever and wanting to make grand statements and write the beautiful sentences and probably be quite literary as a lot of people uh, aim to start out. But that wasn't my, I don't think that was my real voice. And I think that if anything, I've just, the, the, the word, my, my sort of touchstone word that I keep coming back to is authenticity. Um, and that means in the writing too, if I'm being inauthentic with what I'm writing, I think if I'm trying too hard or, or something doesn't feel right, it's not on brand for me. My my brand is what it is and I have to lean into that because that's my strength mm. and that's what the, my publisher like, that's what the readers have come to and expect. I'm really proud of, of the books that I've written and that's what I want to keep writing. Of course, we want to 
progressed and, and explore our creative side. But I think it's about keep coming back to what my authentic voice. What do I love to read? What do I like to read? To keep pushing yourself a little mm. bit outside your comfort zone each time. I think the advice I often give to new readers is if you've got two ideas, one feels safe and one feels really frightening and scary and go for the frightening, scary one, be bold. Sometimes it won't work, but a lot of the time it will and it will be the right decision. And I think that authenticity also extends to doing the promotion and stuff. Initially, that was just something that was so outside my comfort zone that spreading in public and self-promotion and being on social media and doing interviews and things that terrified me. At the beginning, I was almost going to hand back my first advance going, I can't do this. I can't do this. Just running interviews, but as, as a doctor one-on-one to actually speaking to an audience and things. And I think who would want to listen to what I have to say? But it's a case of being, just being myself, being authentic. This is what I am. I'm trying not, I'm not trying to be something else. I'm not trying to be a, a Miles Franklin winner or a Booker Prize winner. I'm here. I'm writing for my readers. I'm writing that something hopefully brings joy and enjoyment to to readers, but also putting across my own view, particularly on that recurring theme of ageism and aging. Yeah, yeah which you always speak so beautifully about, Joe, and, and weave into your stories so authentically. It's a great word, actually. And, of course, this time around, you've been on the morning show. Yes. How was that? Actually, it was terrifying, really, but really exciting. Um, one of the ways I've chosen to frame terror or being frightened or anxious is that it feels the same as being excited. It's this bubbly tummy and, and everything. And that feels the same whether you're excited or, or frightened. So I chose to feel excited about going on on live TV on the morning of the launch. Usually on the day a book's released, it's quick, it's night, nothing happens really. It just goes out into the world. And But this time I was very lucky. I've had the last two books have been published during lockdown. So there was really not a lot of launches and things. This time I had a TV interview and a launch on the same day. And my mother was over from the UK. This is thing. So it was just, it was very special actually. And the TV show, the interview lasts five minutes, which is the quickest five minutes of your life. And everybody is so nice. So if anybody's got this opportunity and they're really worried about it, don't be. They're just lovely people and they're just doing their jobs too. No, I was very Have fortunate. you watched it back? No. I think my parents have about a dozen times and uh, I made everybody at home promise that they weren't watching it and they nodded and winked. No, we're not going to watch it. No, I don't think there's much to be gained by watching no. it back. <laughs> Although I can assure you it's fabulous. But just along those lines, Joe, do you read yeah. reviews and do you check into Goodreads? Because I know this is such a, well, a contentious yeah. issue for writers. Some people love to get on there and check it regularly. Others just will not even yeah. have a bar of it. Where do you sit on that spectrum? I've swung from reading everything to reading almost nothing, which is a shame when people write really beautiful reviews and friends or, or my husband often reads through, picks those out and forwards to me. So I do see the really lovely one. But I just felt that there was nothing to be gained really other than making me feel personally horrible uh, when you read a horrible review and you might have nine beautiful reviews and then the one not so good one and it's human nature to to look for that that negatives when people tag me in in, in reviews i read them and there's been some lovely reviews and i want to thank everybody who has 
left a review or a rating, which has been positive. Thank you so much. And I do read a lot of those, but I generally try to stay away from Goodreads. And I think that's just something that has come with experience. And I would encourage new authors as well to maybe consider that as an option too. Yeah. It's a, it's a space for readers, I think, for, to, to give their, their true opinions of a book. It's not a place for, for authors to necessarily have to focus on what other things. People, not everybody's going to love your yeah. book. I think the majority of people do like it. That's great. But I think that readers need to be free to, to, to give their honest opinions. To. And as you say, it's always the mud that kind of sticks, isn't it? And they're the things we think about at 2 a.m. Yeah. in the morning. And Yeah, I don't know if you have a, an, an opinion of, of that. I know we, we do sometimes. I don't about check this. I hardly ever check Goodreads. Every now and then I might, for some reason, just to check the books are still up or whatever. But yeah, yeah. I'm a bit with you. It's it, it can be crushing just to read one negative review, even though there are many other great ones or you've got a good rating or whatever. So you've really got to look after yourself. Yeah. There are some authors who do go on and, and make entertainment out of their one-star reviews. And it can be quite funny. Sally Hepworth is very yes. funny at doing this. But there have been other authors, I think, who's put together a night of the one-star or reviews or something and actually did a whole event out of it. And, and that's one way to do it, which I think, yeah, look, it's a very personal mm. thing, and that's just what I, I've learned has worked there. Yeah. And Joe, you've got those beautiful books sitting on your shelf behind you there. We've got the gorgeous covers. And Mrs. Winterbottom is, it's in the same vein, but I think this was one that there was a bit more toing and froing over the cover because you got many. I remember you got lots and lots of options with this. What kind of involvement did you have yeah. into the cover for this one? This, uh, this book was actually much more collaborative. I say I have been working now with the same publisher for five books, and and this one I was invited to have an input. We're all there's a bit of an in joke amongst authors that we all get the email with our cover saying "Hope you love this as much as we do," and which is code for this is yeah. book cover. <laughs> uh, and that this once you built up a, a certain brand, I've even got the same font on the front of. The books, the 22 Garamouche is my font. And it's this sort of whimsical, sort of quite quirky font. And they have a certain look and they all have a certain length of, of title. And I suppose that's part of the branding. It does make them more recognizable. So I'm not going to suddenly mm. go off there and have a photographic cover or uh, something. In a way, got to be recognizable as a, a Joanna Nell book. But I did have one request and I... <laughs> Rebecca also loves a green dress, but I had a green dress which had got big gold leaves all over it. And I bought it on a complete whim and I'd been hanging in my wardrobe for ages thinking, I'm never going to wear this other than to something like a book launch. And I thought, I haven't got a gold book. So my one request to Rebecca was, can we have gold, please? And it's not quite gold, but it's blend blended in beautifully with the golds on the night, I have to say. And yeah, look, there was a lot of going backwards and forwards with different ide design ideas. And I found the whole thing fascinating, really, uh, working with a, a cover designer who, who's actually designed all the other covers. Yeah, it was an interesting process that there's a lot of thought that goes into book cover design. It's a whole lot of art in itself, isn't no, it? No, it is. You would know because you've designed, uh, of course, your last covered your yourself. Yeah, I've commissioned someone to do it, but of course had to make that final decision, which was very nerve-wracking. And is this the right one? But you haven't got the publisher there to fall back if, when you're doing it yourself. But yep. I love the little kind of Greek patterning on the cover of this one too, that you've got. It's very subtle. Yeah. yeah. 
hopefully that gives the nod to the great theme in that book without going over the top. Definitely. So this is a little bit, Joe, like similar in some ways to that question I was asking you about after five books, how are you feeling in terms of where you're at with your career? But what advice would you give to authors who maybe have had a couple of books out or they're three or four books in to their career? And I guess I'm thinking in terms of, it could be in terms of the writing itself and the writing process, but also in terms of this navigating the industry and how you maintain your own identity and authenticity in the face of an industry that does often want to put you into a box and push you one way or the other. I I feel like you're really, with this last book, you were really at a crossroads with this Um, looking in from the outside in and it's been really interesting to watch you navigating that. So would you have any advice for anybody out there who is looking to think about their career, the bigger picture of their career and how maybe the book they're working on now, how that fits into to that and how they fit into the publishing industry? Yeah, it, that's a really tricky one and I'm not sure uh, the answer because I'm still navigating that myself. There, there was a time when I thought that I felt a little bit as though I'd been pigeonholed with the type of the books that I was writing, although they were all very different with different characters. There was a central theme there. And in, in some ways, these characters are a little bit younger in this book. And it's, it was maybe me backing my way out of that. I don't think the publishers and the readers are not going to forgive you for suddenly changing direction and not delivering what they want. But you also have to balance that with being, as I say, an authentic writer in writing in your own voice and being being true to yourself. I think it's a balance of the two. And I know a lot of authors who've actually have changed genre. Some have done it very successfully. Look at Amanda Hampson yes. moving into her cozy crime series has just gone gangbusters. And it's but it's a gamble to do that. And so I suppose I'm In a way, I'm just evolving with my books, perhaps moving slightly out of that, away from those earlier books and discovering a little bit more, but trying to take the readers with Mm. me as well. And I think the other thing that's really important, and I think what comes at the bottom of it, we all have times in our careers where we feel as though we're flagging a bit and it certainly seems a bit more of a slog, particularly when it's suddenly your day job, you've got deadlines. And I think it's uh, the other thing I'd say to myself is stay in love with the writing, mm. just see it more as writing rather than publishing books. And sometimes you need to reinvigorate yourself and give yourself a, a new writing challenge. Um, but I think it helps to keep learning and working on your craft as well. So I know you read a lot of craft books, Pam, and you're, you're the perfect embodiment of, of, of the advice that I would say I follow your lead. But sometimes if I'm really stuck, I pick up a new craft book, probably one that you've recommended actually, and it won't necessarily change the way I'm writing, but somewhere in that book, there will be, it could even just be a little sentence or something or just a paragraph that completely changes the way, it just switches my mindset and it opens, it unlocks the door and, and suddenly I see a new idea or I can see a, a way through a, a problem. So I, I, I think we should see ourselves Coming from a profession where I had to do 150 hours a year of continued professional development, sorry, not 150 hours, 50 hours a year. I'm used to being a lifelong learner. 
and doing courses and reading books and things. So I think that we should see ourselves in that professional way as well. And to do a certain amount of, of work on learning our, our craft as well. And I think it's really important to have a community around you too. I'm all for building a community and I think it would be very hard to do it on your own. So that can be a physical community or an online, a virtual one as well. So try to support other authors and be a good member of the community mm. and that community will, will help you out when you need oh, it. Great advice, Jo. I love that. And yes, you are right. I am always about <laughs> the, the next writing craft book. Too much so sometimes. Mrs. Winterbottom is out now. She was released last week, wasn't she? It was only last week. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, she's definitely out there available for people and would make a great Christmas present, listeners, hint, hint, as well as great reading for yourself. But I know that you're already starting to work on your next book. Can we have any little hints about what that might be or is it too early in the piece yet? Absolutely no hints at all because what I've looked at is the truth. <laughs> if I get too excited and start sharing something too soon, it, it, it could go down the wrong route. So I'm only about 10,000 words into a new manuscript. Um, and I think it, it, it gets, it should get easier with each book. I think for me, it, it gets a little bit harder. But I think because the expectation is that the next book needs to build on what you've already done, the success of the previous book. So there's a little bit of anxiety about starting a new book. Once I'm into it and the, flowing it's great but I'm just at that initial stage I've this time I've got the whole premise yay but I haven't plot yeah so I've got characters I'm just playing around with it just at the moment so I have the I almost have the blurb and the tagline but I don't have the plot so I'm trying to incorporate all the lessons I've learned from the previous books or rather avoid the the pitfalls of the previous books and my aim with this one is to to do it in less than six drafts and to have not to have to do a major rewrite this time so I'm spending a little bit more time um, thinking Mm. about this one. Thank you so much and good luck with that of course I do have a little bit of inside information about what the next one's about but the lips are sealed I'm really interested to see how this process goes for you and love that idea of writing the blurb first might even have a crack at that myself for the next one I think. Just might finish up, Joe. with what are you reading at the moment? Any recommended reading? What am I reading? I am reading a beautiful, I think it's a debut, called The Secrets of the Huon Ren by Claire Van Ryan. She's a Tasmanian It's absolutely gorgeous writer. cover. Yeah, and the premise of that is that a, a journalist goes into a nursing home to try and record a story, but ends up being coming involved with a, a woman who she sees cradling a baby doll, and it's it's a Joel's sort of timeline. It's a beautifully written mm. book and a beautiful cover. I think that would make a lovely Christmas present for someone too. So. Sounds like. Yeah, that's the Fruits of the Huon Ren by Claire Van yeah, Sounds like there might be some tissues needed for that one too, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Joe. It's always such a pleasure to chat to you. And I have to get everybody to have a look at your beautiful new website, which I have been oh, on yes. this morning and uh, checking out by our lovely inky Michelle Barraclough. Hasn't she done a great job? I'm so pleased with it. Your previous website was lovely, but this is absolutely gorgeous and just so you. I love it. Of course, you did dig yours yeah. as well. I'm very yeah. but thank you, Michelle. Fresh web design, everyone, if you're looking for a website, although I know Michelle's books are probably closed, but anyway, keep it in mind for the future. So thank you, Joe. Enjoy the next step in the writing process for the new book, and uh, I will see you very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. 
I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>